Hi, this is Amanda Dolan, and welcome to The Mental Society. Today we are joined by Dr. Melissa Green. Dr. Green is a clinical psychologist who has worked in the mental health field for over 20 years. She's earned a master's degree and an advanced certificate in school psychology from Howard University, and she earned her doctorate in clinical psychology from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. In 1998, Dr. Green started her mental health career as a school psychologist in the District of Columbia, and she continued that work in Virginia, Georgia, Hawaii, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. In 2009, she pivoted her career working on a military installation in Hawaii for five years. While she was there, she co-facilitated a group with a yoga teacher, and that inspired her to complete a yoga teacher training program after she saw the benefits that her military clients received from their yoga practice. In 2017, Dr. Green's career shifted yet again into forensic psychology. She spent three years working as a forensic evaluator in a psych psychiatric hospital, performing competency to stand trial evaluations, violent, violence risk assessments, and testifying as an expert witness. Dr. Green currently focuses on teaching brain health, healthy aging, and supporting dementia family caregivers. Oh my, that is so much in a career in just 20 years. That's really amazing. Thank you so much, Dr. Green, for being here with me. Thank you for inviting me. Um, now, when I reached out to you originally, um, I was I wanted to talk to you really about brain health in general and dementia and how it, it relates. And I know that when you and I were talking briefly to begin with, you made this shift into dementia and brain health for very personal reasons. That's correct. So back in 2014, um, I was living in Hawaii, living my best life, so to speak. Um, and I just started to notice that my dad was not, not remembering a lot of things. so. Every time we go to the doctor and say, hey, make sure you tell them to like check your memory. And of course, that's like not something to say to somebody that's having memory problems because they will forget. But eventually he remembered after a couple of visits. And um, the next time I came home, I met with his physician and he did a workup, neuropsychological evaluation. He sent him to a neurologist and he was eventually diagnosed with vascular dementia and Alzheimer's. So two types of neurocognitive disorders. And that changed the whole trajectory of my life and the family. So I, you know, within the next year, relocated back to my home state of Georgia so that I could be closer to my dad and help with his caregiving. And what a... Like, what a gift to him that you are there to support him. And also, it makes me think of, like, what sometimes, I guess, could be, um, like, oh, I don't, burden is not the word that I want to use, but it takes up a lot of the caregiver's time and energy. And, and for you, you moved literally thousands of miles to be there to care for him. So, like, how can family like how can families support their loved ones as they are navigating any kind of dementia or decline in their overall brain health? So it is it's a huge 
challenge um, for for family members and for the person who is experiencing the cognitive decline. And um, oftentimes, well, the first thing I think families need to do is to get a thorough assessment. My my dad's physician, actually, his dad had had um, been diagnosed with dementia a few years prior, but he had passed on. So it was very personal for him. And I think he uh, really went above and beyond with educating me and my brother who have power of attorney of my dad um, about the things that we um, could do to support him. Um, so I think the first thing is really getting thorough assessments, whether it's um, through uh doing uh, a primary care doctor who specializes in geriatrics, uh, neuropsychologist, neurologist, to better understand uh, the type of uh, issue or issues that are going on because the treatment plan could look a little different um, because there are different types of dementia because dementia is not a diagnosis, it's just an umbrella term. So uh, there are different types. So um, it getting more information can help to drive the treatment plan. And also I think um, the family has to make a lot of huge decisions, whether or not you're going to bring support into the home versus having the person go out of the home. But what I can say from my personal experience and from my experience in trying to develop things to support uh, dementia family caregivers is that um, they they need a lot of support in getting to the point of accepting that this person that they love um, is actually not functioning at the same level. I can say with my dad, people, I think, thought that he was functioning higher than it really was because he had a routine that he was going through right. for years, right? So he looked like he was functioning higher. So they were really kind of minimizing the things that were going on when there were some issues like, oh, you know, he's just doing that. Yeah. So that's, that's a big thing. Um, finding ways to get, the, usually there's one yeah. or two part people in the family that might get it. And they have to be the liaison or be the ones who communicate to the rest of the family. So then how do how does that affect the caregiver's mental health and well-being if they are the ones trying to explain what's going on to the others in the family and caregiving and talking to the doctors? How does that affect the caregiver long term? You mean if the if the caregiver has to be the one to Yeah, like the care well the caregiver, like how it can be a lot, right, to keep someone at home right. dealing with dementia. So what are what are ways that all of that caring for somebody with dementia, how does that impact someone's mental wellness? Yeah. Well, it really depends on how it's handled. I think um, if everybody is, well, for the ideal situation is that the person who has the dementia, they have um, actually stated what their desire is 
if they were to get in that stage so that people don't have to actually guess, right, what to do. But obviously that doesn't happen most of the time. And so, yeah, I think if they're, if the family members don't agree, that could have a, a significant impact on their loved ones. And I'll just say loved one referring to the person with dementia. Um, if their loved one is sort of caught in the middle, because there may be people that think that they need a higher level of care or more support, meaning people coming into the home, then there may be other people who do not want outsiders, so to speak, into in the home. And, you know, they may want to be the ones who care for that person. And people have good intentions when they want to do that. But many times people don't, I don't think they see beyond the moment to right. look at the magnitude of what's going on and what all is needed in order to uh, to make sure that that person is safe for one, uh, because I can say from my personal experience, I never thought that I would um, have my dad go to an assisted living facility. And you and I talked a little bit earlier about uh, cultural factors that may influence mm -hmm. those kinds of decisions. And in the African-American community, people rarely ever um, place their loved ones outside of the home for care. And so that was never a thought in my mind. And I I would guess my brother's mind either. And I have a lot of siblings, but my brother and I were the, the okay. ones who returned, right? But uh, the reality of the situation, even with me being a psychologist and understanding, I did a lot of psychological testing and understanding mm -hmm. where he was functioning after seeing the psych test data, knowing you know some of the things that we could do to support it it wasn't realistic to expect that that I could take that on by myself or as a family that we could do it and him get uh, the most uh, benefit from the support because it wasn't our wouldn't be our primary right. job. We have jobs that we go to and then come and in families and. Right, right. And and that's the thing. I think a lot of caregivers, you know, some of them may feel guilty about that. And yeah, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to shift my work to support care, caregivers and making decisions. Not that I think one, there's mm -hmm. one way, you know, that people right. should absolutely go, but um, I would like to help people to make decisions that they feel good about and, and help them understand that you know they don't have to feel guilty if they have to get additional support because it's probably going to lead to a better quality of life my dad's doctor always said um he really needs to he lived at home my, my by himself my mom passed away in 2002 so he had been living alone for right. years um and so my dad's doctor always said he needs that socialization he needs to mm -hmm be around other people. And I tried to take him to um, like, I guess it was a, uh, not adult day health, but it, it was a community center for older adults. And, and, and he was in his 
he may have been 80 or he's in his late seventies and we went there and he said, this is for super seniors. And I'm like, what do you think you are? <laughs> so he wasn't ready for that. So we, we, you know, we took him there, you know, once just so he could see if he wanted to participate in activities and he didn't. And so we didn't push it. But after his doctor started encouraging us, um, I, I realized now that with him going into the assisted living facility that he has gained so much from mm -hmm. that interaction and he's not even a social person. And so that, and now there's a lot of research to support that, that that socialization is key in helping us to, uh, to continue to develop new neural connections and all of that. Right. And I, you know, I shared with you as well, my, my mother just, like, well, she's moving in, I think, either today or tomorrow. She's moving into a, a independent living retirement community. Um, she's has been on her own since my dad died in 99, so decades. Um, but she doesn't get out much. She's very introverted and, and likes, you know, to be by herself. Um, but when she went to check this place out, she ate dinner a couple nights there to just get a feel for it. And it was amazing how different her mood was when she was telling me about meeting new people um, and interacting with them. And so while, you know, she does not, has, or doesn't have any sort of diagnosis of any sort of dementia or cognitive decline, um, although we're saying so much, I, I want to ask you about in a minute, um, I think it's been really good for her. And especially when I think about my grandmother, her mom, who lived to be 106 weeks old. She always said she wanted to get like be a hundred and then she was going to be done. And she sure did that. Um, but, you know, this was a woman who up until the last few months, she played bridge at the country club with her friends, constantly interacting with people on the phone, writing letters, very social. And, um, and I'm wondering, you know, how much that using her brain, both with in relationships with people, but also the almost science or whatever of playing cards, which like do those sorts of things, like keeping your brain active impact how um, dementia or that cognitive decline is experienced? Absolutely. And the, the um, Global Council on Brain Health, which is an organization that's, um, was created by AARP, and I think they work alongside a national, I mean, an international organization that does similar things in the UK. Um, they, they have uh, published research that uh, actually supports this, and one of the things that they talk about to help to combat cognitive decline is doing cognitively stimulating activities. So playing bridge is something that would requ require you to be able to uh, problem solve and come right. up with tacti tactical strategies on how to go from this point to that point. Um, and also that socialization piece is a part of that, mm -hmm. that research that is done by the Global Council on Brain Health that says that that interaction with other people and um, it forces you to have to communicate, which um, that's that's one way that we're 
combating um, cognitive decline. Because if you're just sitting at home by yourself watching TV all the time, you're you're not um, you're not using that. You're not communicating. You're not having a problem skill. You're not having to navigate through situations and um, you know make decisions. All those things that we take for granted are involved in that playing bridge and and doing it in a group mm -hmm. setting so I think that's great and so one of the things that you know I said I was going to get back to it my mom you know we've had her doctors do some tests on her cognitive function and and for the most part they've been good except for she's got some issues with her lungs she has some lung disease that can cause her oxygen levels to drop pretty dramat dramatically um, in certain situations. And what I and my sister both noticed, which is why we talked to the doctor about her cognitive function, was there were times when she was getting really confused and her words weren't making sense. Um, and now we can see that it was more about her oxygen than her cog cognition. However, I have concerns that, you know, that repeatedly happening might impact her overall brain health. Um, but how often do things like that happen where there's some other issue, whether maybe it's a medication that the person's taking or um, some other health thing going on that might show up as if there's dementia or cognitive decline, but it's not? And how do doctors differentiate that? So I don't have the stats on how often, but I do know that it happens. Even with uh, conditions like um, urinary tract disorders, which I had no idea until it happened to my dad. And I studied you know, a lot of cognitive disorders when I was doing a lot of testing for school-aged children. That was kind of my area of specialty, I had no idea that there was a correlation between uh, a urinary tract infection and cognitive functioning. But um, just like you saw with your mom, I I've heard this, particularly with um, older adults, that it there's some impact on the way that the person is able to think and just really understand what's going on. And it it clears up when the condition clears up. So it does happen. I don't know how frequent it happens, but I know that after we experienced it personally and I just started mentioning it to other people, uh, it, it wasn't something that people had not heard of. Um, and there are other conditions that I've heard that uh, may have a similar type of reaction. That is fact that like your urinary tract affects your brain one it's fascinating but also it's another reminder of how important your brain health is and your body like your physical health like there's you can't separate the two like you either take right. care of you, your whole self or you're not great any in any part of your existence right because a urinary tract infection can cause cognitive decline, but also, right, I know for me, people out there may laugh, I have ADHD, and which that means sometimes I don't realize I have to go to the bathroom, like, until, like, I'm about to, to like, wet myself, 
not because I am clueless or it's just the way that my brain and body work. And so urinary tract infections are something that I have to be cognizant of. Um, but I never thought like, oh, me not going to the bathroom, like that could affect my brain, but also my brain is impacting, right? Like it's kind of the cycle of all of those things are connected. Um, so like, when we think about how all of those things are connected and, and to um, like that relationships are important, community is important. What are things that like we can do in our community to help all of us long-term with our brain health and cognitive function? So one thing that I think is um, important is for us to start changing our beliefs about aging. Yeah, I read a very interesting book last year. I think it's called Breaking the Age Code or something like that, where um, uh, the person who wrote it was a psychologist and a professor, and I can't remember where, but uh, yeah, she talked about doing research on the relationship between the whether a person or not thinks that um, aging is a positive thing versus a negative thing and how that impacted the their physical aging. So there's definitely a mind-body connection like you were saying. So I think uh, starting to challenge any negative um, age beliefs that we have, and sometimes we have them and we don't even realize it because we are bombarded with so many messages in the community about aging or trying to find anti-aging right. you know, things that are going on and you know I always say I'm I'm 51 and I'm, I'm proud of it um and I, now I learned that there is a benefit to being proud of it so uh what they recommend in that book and I'm going to steal it is to create an age belief journal and do it over the span of a, a couple of weeks, just start to notice and track if, you know, if you say, oh, my birthday is coming up. Oh my gosh, I'm getting old. You know, those kinds of things that you may say, or your friends may say, or people around you. And then think about how maybe you could uh, reword that and, and make it more positive, right? And mm -hmm. as we get older, we start to attribute, um, things to aging that maybe we didn't attribute to aging before and and it could be because of us getting older but it right. could not be but it's an automatic like after you reach a certain age that you start to uh, shift all the negatives to the fact that you're aging and maybe right. not to the fact that you're not sleeping or that you're I don't know overindulging in alcohol or something right. like that which is you know you said that in Last night I was, was at a friend's house and I was walking down the stairs and my knee was clicking and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting so old. My knee like is making noise going down the stairs. And I didn't even think about like that that was uh, like me saying aging, I guess, could be problematic or is not great because my body is, my body's falling apart because I'm getting older. Um, right. And not... And not Right. And not that we want to be delusional. I didn't mean to, right. sorry to cut you off, but we want to be realistic about it. But there's a slant towards negative, particularly okay. in 
our American culture because, you know, we value youth and, you know, all of that. And so I think um, when we're talking to people, we can just start to to challenge, gently challenge those things. Well, maybe it's because of that or maybe it's because mm -hmm. of this. And and also you mentioned, uh, you know, walking up the steps or down the steps or something, uh, just moving more, encouraging each other to you don't have to run a marathon, but just moving more frequently has also been shown to be so beneficial for for brain health and for physical health, obviously, as well. You know, you got me thinking, too, that I this elementary school that my kids went to and that I spent a lot of time volunteering at when they had grandparents day. There were some people from a, some older people, retired people from a local church that came over to be like the grandparents for a day for the kids who didn't have a grandparent show up. And I remember watching those interactions with those people who were older, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, interacting with these five, six, seven-year-olds and how just the, the relationship that they created. And it almost seemed like the, the people that were older, um, Kind of, there was some like joy that was you could see on their face, right? Just like having fun, coloring, laughing, and then these young children had another adult around them that was supportive and showing up. So it's making me think like, what kind of benefit is there in bringing those two hugely different generations together? Um, I don't know. I don't know that there's really a question in there. I'm just thinking like there's, I feel like there's something there. There is. In the positive psychology research, they talk about the benefit of multi-generational relationships as well and helping people to, you know, to be happy or to feel like they're, uh, you know, having more meaningful or fulfilling lives because, and especially for the older person, because once people retire, a lot of times they don't feel like they have so much of their identity wrapped in their careers. Right. They don't feel like they have a, a purpose. So participating in those activities with younger people where they can see how they are contributing to their lives can be beneficial. So in this conversation, I feel like there's a whole lot of being in communion or community with people that impacts your brain health, your cognitive function, um, and just overall mental wellness. So that it sounds like that might be just the first place for all of us to start is to build relationships that are positive and healthy with people that are important to us. Yeah, yeah, and it sounds so so simple, but I have challenged myself. The more I get into the research, the more I see, you know, relationship, relationship, relationship. And I'm a very, I'm, a, I always call myself an ultra introvert. I like to be by myself a lot, or just do things by myself, or with my, you know, whoever. If I'm in a relationship with someone, do it with them. But um, I'm trying to challenge myself to. 
I want to take a you know dancing class and art class and just more things where I will have to interact with people. Um, and usually once I get there, I'm fine. But sometimes I'm kind of like, yeah, I don't feel like, you know, being around a whole lot of people. But but it, it is important. I, and I've seen it over and over and over again. And I frankly saw it with, with my dad. I, I don't believe He's 90. I, I do not believe that he would still be here had he not been in that facility where he is constantly interacting with people who are you know, communicating with him and, yeah. you know, forcing him to have to communicate as well. But, you know, you brought something up about wanting to take an art class or a dance class. Creativity. How does being like creative in, the, in those ways, writing, art, dancing, how does that impact our brain? Well, I think anytime you're learning a new skill, you're stretching that muscle, so to mm -hmm. speak, in the brain. You're creating new neural connections, and and that is a protective factor against cognitive decline. Because for a while, people thought that you know, as you get older, you really maybe can't learn as well, which is not necessarily true i mean there are some you know we do we may have some memory moments right. where we for, forgetful but uh, dementia is not a normal part of aging so you are still able to learn you're just as capable unless you've had a head injury or or something significant happened to, in, to impact that so now i'm going to ask that how does a traumatic brain injury affect dementia and it really yeah, that's still the, the red the research is, is in process maybe well uh, and it depends i know if you look at um uh, you know there's more and more research coming out about uh, athletes actually mm -hmm. last week i attended a, a conference on um called black men's uh brain health and it, they were actually holding it um wherever the Super Bowl was held in Arizona, I think. Yeah. Because they were um yeah, they were just looking at like the trend of these head injuries resulting in people having cognitive decline or, you know, even some types of dementia. Um so it depends on I guess the severity of the head injury. I worked for a while with active duty service members and Part of my responsibility um, when I worked on military installation was to do a cognitive assessment before they deployed and then post-deployment as well. And we would look at um, any differences in scores, but we would do it to get a get baseline data on their cognitive functioning. But it really varies from person to person depending mm -hmm. on a lot of factors there's so many factors that come into play as to whether or not um you know this head injury will have a significant impact and then like you know head injury is a physical you know um injury and that affects the way that the brain functions and mental illness is also you know how the brain the brain is not functioning optimally i guess is maybe a way to put it so is there any link that, that you know of or you've seen in your own experience between someone with a mental illness 
you know, throughout their life and their overall cognitive health? Well, personally, I haven't seen it, but I know that, um, again, referring back to the Global Council on Brain Health and their recommendations, they talk about uh, learning ways to manage stress, to minimize the possibility of cognitive decline, because if you're not able to manage stress, then um, obviously you're, for those people who are uh, experiencing stress or traumatic stress, particularly, then they're constantly being flooded with uh, stress hormones, and right. that's not good for you know, our bodies, our nervous system, right? Uh, so learning how to manage stress uh, can help us to minimize the impact of the uh, those stress hormones and not have them constantly flowing through our bodies. We need them for that short period of time when we okay. feel like that we may uh, be coming in contact. Taking, right? <laughs> exactly. But our, right. And our, our nervous system is, is fascinating, but it's, it hasn't evolved to the point where it distinguishes between us being chased by a bear or somebody just getting on your nerves at work, right? right. So learning how to manage that your reaction to it can help to decrease the how much you're exposed to those those hormones that that are helpful in short periods, but uh, over the long periods, when you have chronic stress, can start to affect you physically. Yeah, and it's you know I when I work with people, I remind them that like fear, like that anxious fear and excitement, feel very similar in our body. Um, and so sometimes it's how you interpret something as well that affects the release of those hormones or, you know, how you're experiencing life. And I kind of think of like, you know, those stress hormones, like, um, what is it? Cortisol? Is that the one? I'm, um, it can cause inflammation as well in our body. And so, um, and and I, th I wonder, and, and there may not be an answer to this, but inflammation and all of that as well, like when you're not caring for your physical body too, how all of that is impacting how your brain is aging. Um, right. And I, yeah, so I'm, this is all interesting that it's, it really is about starting now. Like don't wait, right, to take care of yourself and your brain and Maybe even don't wait to have those discussions with your loved ones about what the future might look like if these sorts of things happen. And with your siblings too, like, are we going to put dad or mom in a facility? If so, who's making those decisions? How are we going to have that conversation? Consider the costs and the, you know, how you feel about it too, because for, you know, I know on, for me, in my experience, my, my ex-husband's grandmother um, is at a place where she probably needs to be in some sort of assisted living, like the very, like just barely assisted, but um, it's been really a struggle because she doesn't want to go and 
being a Hispanic family, there's this, you know, we've got to take care of her here. Um, and so sometimes I just, if, if they had had those conversations earlier, I wonder what would have looked differently, you know, how that would have been different. Um, so, but yeah, I'm just, it's, this is all interesting and in how it all plays together and, and how we really do have some um, control over how our brains continue to grow and age and um, change. And you sent me a link that I'm going to share in the show notes um, that is something that you have that's the top six secrets for brain health and healthy aging. Um, yes. So I'm going to share that in the show notes as well as uh, I'm going to find the book that you mentioned. Um, you said Breaking the Age Code. I'm going to figure yeah, out. I think her name is Becca Levy. Um, I will. Uh, Yes, Becca, and it's L-E-V-Y. All right. Well, I will find that and put that in the show notes as well as a link to the Global Council um, on Brain Health so that you can find more information there. I know, Dr. Green, you mentioned that um, organization and their website several times. So you can go there and find information. I'm also going to link Dr. Green's website below so you can find more about what she does. And um, if, you know, she probably has some additional resources that would be useful for you. And you are licensed to practice in Hawaii and Georgia currently, is that correct? correct? So if you are in Hawaii or Georgia and you are looking for someone to help you on that path of figuring out how to help your loved one and yourself go through that journey um, as a loved one moves through dementia um, and into uh additional care or how you can continue to support the loved one. Um, I will make sure that you can reach out to her and uh, I'm sure she'd be more than happy to work with any of you that are in those states. Um, it's key because uh, licensure is not always across state lines. So, um, but she might also, actually I'm guessing that Global Council on Brain Health would also have some resources that are local to you as well. Um, Probably so. so. Um, I know. Uh, are you talking about local resources? Yes. I would I recommend a, maybe Psychology Today. Okay. okay. If you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I have a bunch of resources on the website too. Um, but I know that yeah. geriatric um, psychiatry, psychology, and um, medical care is something that's growing as the baby boomer population ages. Um, so I'm sure there are plenty of people out there that can help you. Um, and I'm sure that there are even support groups and other things like that if you need them um, and are looking for those. So um, as we discussed earlier- the Alzheimer's Association, oh, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say Alzheimer's Association, they, they do have, uh, a search database where you can find local okay. support groups and um, clinicians I believe, as well. Okay, I will find that too and link that below. Um, and we also, you know, we already talked about how community and relationships really do help your brain um, continue to stay healthy uh, and uh, 
functioning at a higher level for longer. So having those additional support groups are not just good for you to have support, but also good, right? And creating relationships and um, continuing with those community kind of things. Um, so Dr. Green, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed this conversation and learning more with you. Um, thank you for inviting me. It was my pleasure. Um, and so with that, we have reached the end of today's episode. Thank you for listening and learning more about mental health and society. Now go out, open a conversation, and discover how mental health is experienced in your world. You can find more episodes of The Mental Society in all the places you find your favorite podcast. Please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out on anything. You can find other resources um, and articles by visiting our website, which is thementalsociety.com. And remember that you are not alone in your struggles. Hope and help are all around you. And until next time, this is Amanda Dolan, wishing you good health, mental and otherwise.